Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. Good evening. It's good to see you all. If you would turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we're going to finish the chapter tonight beginning at verse 26. Verse 26 to verse 40. As you turn there, Paul's main theme in chapter 14 is edification. Edification, the the word is literally house building. House building. This is how we see God make his family home. His people, he makes them into his family home. So edification is building up God's family. And Paul says that everything must edify the church. It's mandatory. Whether it be whatever this tongues thing is, to prophecy, to female behavior. Absolutely nothing can be permitted that does not edify God's house, God's people. And so this really is an issue, a matter, a point of humble obedience to God's order. That's what this text is all about. So it might seem strange at points, but for the early church, for that first century church, these were essential issues to address, particularly for the very unhealthy Corinthian church. We have to remember that this is a letter to a messed up church, not just dealing with sin, but dealing with all forms of unhealthy behavior. So where we're confused, we can say, praise God, this is confusing us. It means that we're in a healthy church and we're not dealing with the unhealthy issues that the Corinthian church were struggling with. It's kind of a good point. I just made that up right now. We can thank God that we're in a healthy church because this is so unfamiliar to us. Point number one, everything must edify and nothing cannot Everything must edify in the church, and nothing cannot. Verse 26, Paul says, what is the outcome then, brothers? What is the outcome? What's the result? What's the result of all your behavior? What is it? What's going on? He's being descriptive. Notice notice that. He's not being prescriptive here. He's not saying, what should you do? He's saying, what's the outcome? What's, What's happening? All your unhealthy behavior, what's it amounting to in the worship service? And he continues, when you assemble for the corporate worship service, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has a translation. They're all coming at it, prepared to dominate the worship service. Can you imagine? I almost thought about doing this with you guys tonight. I thought about maybe taking one guy and one gal, putting them outside, and then telling the rest of you to like sing a song or to read a scripture or to teach something or whatever, and then them to come in and it's just pure chaos in here. 
They're not edified by anything. They can't make out what's going on. It's just a, it's, it's a word called a cacophony, which means a bad sound. It's just a cacophony of chaos here. He says, that's descriptive. What you're doing, everyone's coming, wanting to dominate the worship service. What's the solution? Let all things be done for edification. If it doesn't edify, get rid of it. Stop. Meaning, your church is super gifted. No one's denying that. Your problem is not that you lack gifted people. Your problem is that you're sinfully and immaturely hijacking the spiritual gifts to make the church service a talent show. And you need to stop. The Corinthian church had devolved into a carnival. Carnival is literally a flesh festival. They were all competing for the limelight. They were competing for the stage. None of them were concerned about edification. All of them were preoccupied with self-promotion. They wanted to show off how gifted they were, each one. I was once forced, when I was in youth ministry, I was forced, yes, forced, to attend a youth specialties conference. For those of you not familiar with youth specialties, it's the dominant ministry resourcing youth pastors in America and probably in many countries. Hundreds of thousands of youth pastors go to youth specialties for their resources. It was held at the Staples Center in L.A. Big deal, okay? Opened up praise and worship for the conference with a Michael Jackson song. And what is it? I'm starting with the man in the mirror. Is that what it is? So now you're embarrassed to admit that you know what song I'm talking about. Hey, Michael Jackson's fine. He doesn't belong in worship. We proceeded from that to the keynote speaker, at least for that evening, Donald Miller, the author of a book, Blue Like Jazz. Some of you may have heard of it. And the whole time, he was cussing as he was telling us his story of church's failures. Now, you might be wondering why Sam bringing that up. The talent was undeniable. This was an extraordinarily talented room. Wonderful musicians. Gifted, gripping speaker. Very effective communicator. Zero spiritual benefit. That's a dominant Christian ministry, you guys. Like they're leading the way in youth ministry. And that was, that was 10 plus years ago. Who knows what's going on now? I pray that it's better. God says, through Paul, I don't care how talented you are if you are not aiming to edify people in the faith. People loving your performance is not edification. Okay, let me, let me illustrate this. After I preach a sermon, sometimes people come up and say something like, great sermon. Now, some of them, based on their maturity, I know what they mean is, hey, Lord really spoke to me and ministered to me in some really neat ways. Others, I know, are probably saying something like, hey, that was a really passionate speech. So my heart sinks. 
And I'll often ask them, well, how did the Lord minister to you? How did the Lord build you up through his word? And I want to hear how that has happened. Now, what's one thing the Corinthians have right? They're not all trash, right? Paul's affirmed them that they're Christians. They're born again. They're in the Lord. They've been enriched in every way. They have everything they need for life and godliness. What's one thing they got right? Well, when they came together, they came together to be active, not passive. They were not coming to church being a passive consumer. They were coming to church with something to the word. What's the word I'm looking for? Contribute. They were looking to be active. And we can learn that from the Corinthians, can't we? Do you come on Tuesday nights looking to contribute? Who can I encourage tonight? Who can I really benefit? How can I serve? How can I, you know, someone's got to, someone's had a bad day. Someone's had a bad week. When I'm in small group, how can I be thinking through the message so that when we fellowship in small group, my participation is thoughtful and it's encouraging others to get involved in the communication. And a million other ways the Lord might bring to your attention. You might be thinking about something. I wish that we did this at uh, college and young adults, and we don't do this. And I wish we did this. I wish we did this. Instead of thinking, I wonder why God's putting this on my heart. Probably for you to do, right? Go back and revisit 1 Corinthians 12. The Corinthians were coming prepared. They were just coming prepared wrongly. Second point. Tongues must be limited and translated. Just put it simply like that. Tongues must be limited and translated. If you want to learn what tongues is, I'm tempted to do that again tonight. Go back and listen to the message from last week. Okay? I explain it in detail. Paul says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, verses 27 to 28, if anyone speaks in a tongue, by the way, emphasis on if, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at most three and each in turn. And one must translate. But if there is no translator, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Now, how many, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Maybe I will. How many of you have witnessed tongues? Okay. I've witnessed it. So that's not like a a weird thing, I think you're getting in the majority, uh, to have witnessed people doing the thing called tongues. Did they follow these strict guidelines? Go back and we'll look in detail. When I was 10-ish, I attended a camp with my pal. And he was my best buddy at the time. My parents were really young believers So they didn't understand that the church doing the camp was very charismatic. I didn't even know what that was. At this camp, I'm away. We're up in the hills. I'm with my friend. And people began howling and blabbering. That's what it sounded like to me. Slaying one another in the spirit. And one woman, who oddly resembled Napoleon Dynamite for some reason convulsed, started convulsing, seizing, and fell straight back. And I thought, I remember as a kid thinking like, that had to hurt on a hard surface like this. And I remember looking at that and what do you think that my friend and I did? We ran. 
and we hid. There are stacks of chairs like that. We hid under the stacks of chairs and we just cried. It was terrifying. My friend went to that church and he was terrified. This was normal behavior for him. And he was scared, crying. Total confusion. We freaked out. Total confusion. Zero peace. I'll repeat that. Total confusion. Zero peace. Verse 33. Look with me. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Only conclusion that I can draw. That was not of God. Whatever that was was not of God. Whatever happened there was certainly not biblical tongues. I know for a fact because it does not stand up in the light of scripture. Therefore, whatever I witnessed was at best pagan, at worst demonic. That's the fact. Believers never lose their mind and seize on the floor. But you can read of pagans doing that you can read of demoniacs doing that. Never believers. Now, Paul gives four requirements for speaking in tongues, which, and I will bear repetition, were Gentile languages spoken in the audience of unbelieving Jews so that unbelieving Israel would remember the prophecies of Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and repent. Every instance they show up in Acts is clearly the gospel going out to Judea, to Sumeria, and then to the ends of the earth, where unbelieving Jews are convicted and brought to faith. Paul gives four requirements for speaking in tongues. Number one, a maximum of three get to speak in a single worship service. Number two, they cannot go at the same time. They must speak one at a time. Number three, a translator must be present and ready to translate, which means we know who has the gift of translation and we know they're there. Number four, they cannot speak in a tongue unless they know that the translator is present and is ready to translate for them. That's strict. That is very organized. Now, what does the necessity of a translation again prove? That tongues is not babble. Tongues is real, meaningful language that communicates. It's not yabba-dabba-doo. I watched, I had Noah Potter. Um, He's in seminary and I said, hey man, I want you to send me a few videos of, of tongue speech. And it's what you see I'm not saying all of it out there is necessarily, but I'm saying you've got a lot of guidelines that completely eliminates most of what we're seeing out there. And it's coming to yeah stuff. I mean, it's not a meaningful language. It's, it's ecstatic. It's out of control emotionally. What if there's no translator though? And I just can't hold it in. I've got the gift of tongues. I've got to exercise it. How dare you tell me that I can't? Paul says very clearly, keep it between you and God. Don't you dare speak it out loud. On that haunting night so long ago, I saw no order. Just loads of people making noises 
all at the same time without any translation. I was horrified, not edified. By the way, this, this issue, this is not like some throwaway issue. This stuff actually affects churches. Without going into detail, the church that I was at previously really fell apart due to this. There were those that were really wanting to push hard prophecies and tongues in the service, even though there was absolutely no knowledge whatsoever of anyone in the church that had the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues. So this became a massive issue among the elders and one of the men who ultimately led to my resignation from the church just to show how serious it is, not to make a point of fighting over this. One of the men forced, who led to my resignation ended up going to another church right away where in a worship service they invited tongue speakers to the front but they didn't have a translator. And the pastor kept awkwardly, after the woman talked in tongues for about three minutes, the pastor kept awkwardly asking for translation. Silence. No one came forward. The pastor, very uncomfortable, then said, "Um, as best as I can tell, our sister said, God is great and we should trust him. And all I thought was, you went through all that? For that, you could have said that, pastor. You should have said that, pastor. And forwent that. What was that? You didn't have any translator present. That was an unbiblical expression. And candidly, it didn't do anything for your church. You see, this is important stuff, you guys. This is affecting Christians, real Christians. Point three, Prophecy must be limited and controlled. What do we mean by that? Verses 29 to 33. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Now, what is Paul discussing? Notice this. Is he discussing, be careful, prophecies? No. Prophecies are involved. Paul is addressing prophets. That means people that the church knew were, in fact, prophets. Prophets of the caliber of the Old Testament. Prophets on par with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, John the Baptist. People who God spoke to and through for the church. And when they spoke... Not everything, not everything that a prophet would do as he went about was inerrant. But what prophets did is they got up and they said, the Lord has spoken to me. Thus says the Holy Spirit we see in the New Testament. Thus says the Lord in the Old Testament. Thus says the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And what proceeded out of their mouth after they said that had to be inerrant. It was the word of God. It was the word of God as the Bible is being compiled. Remember, the Corinthian church has maybe 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, has maybe James, I think, if I remember correctly. They don't have most of the New Testament. So God is speaking the truths that we have in the New Testament now through these prophets in the early church. And what they said when they said, thus that says the Lord, was absolutely word of God. This is not 
suggesting in any way, shape, or form any one of you going, I've got a word from the Lord. I've got a prophecy. No. These are people that they knew to be prophets. You see? Now, as God had, while the Old Testament was written, God spoke by prophets until the new was completed. We know that for a fact. The debate rages over whether or not that continued after the New Testament was completed and widely accessible around the Mediterranean. Now, what are the qualifications of the prophet? Deuteronomy 18, godliness, faithfulness, accuracy. If he's living in unrepentant sin, false prophet. If he's contradicting any Bible doctrine, false prophet. If he's wrong about a future prediction, false prophet. The church is commanded in many places in scripture to judge whether the speaker is a true or a false prophet based upon Deuteronomy. Paul says, as the law also says, okay, he's referencing what everyone would know about prophecy. Now, I've heard that this, quote, judgment we see here is proof that New Testament prophets can be wrong, that you pick and choose what's good, what's bad out of the prophecy. They get some things right, they get some things wrong, all the while stating, thus says the Lord. My friends, listen, okay, you can get mad at me for saying this. I stand confident on the word of God that that is ridiculous. There is absolutely no category for such a thing or for such a prophet in scripture. You say, thus saith the Lord, the requirements are perfection. And as soon as it's done, sure, you might say something in conversation at the water jug or something that's, you know. The Apostle Paul undoubtedly said, hey, I really think that the Roman Spartans are going to beat the Greek you know, Athenians this week in soccer. And he was wrong. That doesn't make him a false prophet. Right? If he said, thus saith the Lord, the Spartans are going to beat the, the Athenians. Uh, we're in trouble, Paul. You guys get the point? You can disagree with me. That's fine, but I want to make sure that I'm being clear in what I believe the word of God is saying. Prophets weren't preachers. They were not expositors. They were claiming to speak the very word of God while preachers exposit it. You're going to hear me say some wrong things. You're right to test this, to, to, to search the scriptures and see if what I'm saying holds up under the scrutiny of God's word. I'm not saying thus says the Lord. The only time I say that is when I read scripture. But prophets were speaking the inerrant word of God or they were false. I wonder, perhaps some of you have been listening to false prophets. Maybe. And the word of God is using this series to say, knock it off. Get off TikTok. Get off YouTube. Stop getting your theology from people who are popular or exciting to listen to just because they've got a lot of followers. 
measure their lives and their speech and their conduct in light of God's word. I want you to picture the scene that Paul's put before us. Picture the scene. Two, maybe three prophets are sitting down in front. We know those are the prophets in this church. We know who they are. We know their names. We know that God has gifted them as prophets. They're tested by Deuteronomy 18. One of them stands up, verse 30, but if a revelation is made to another who is seated, one of the other prophets seated there, the first must keep silent. Interruption is prohibited. They're not to be fighting over, vying over the podium, the pulpit. Why? Verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one. Is Paul saying all the Christians in the church can prophesy? No. He's already told us very clearly in chapter 12, verse 29, not all are prophets. Paul is sounding like an elementary school teacher speaking to the prophets among the Corinthian church. You can wait your turn. You can all do this one at a time. Now, why is that the rule? Verse 31. So that, here's what prophecy is for. So that all may what? Learn. And all may be what? Exhorted or encouraged or comforted or whatever. Notice this, guys. When you think of prophecy, what do you think of? You're thinking of fortune telling. You're thinking of future casting. You're thinking of, you know, oh, there's an omen or, oh, this is going to happen. That's not what prophecy was. Prophecy gives people the opportunity to learn. What do you learn in scripture? Doctrine. Revelation. You study doctrine. Prophecy was primarily doctrinal. Why did God send prophets to the New Testament church? So that all may learn. The Greek to learn is manthano. You might hear the word math. We get math from manthano. Manthano is to study, to be taught, or to be instructed. And so the early church was to study and to learn based on what the prophet said. Just like we would have done that while Isaiah was prophesying, or Jeremiah was prophesying, or Moses was prophesying. When you think of Moses, Moses prophesying, you don't think him, you know, some cloaked figure telling the future. You think of him giving the law. You think of the same thing with Elijah. Elijah saying, listen to the law. Listen to God's word. And that's what the prophets were, in fact, doing. And they were sharing truth that had been compiled now for us in the New Testament. What, therefore, was a prophecy? To belabor the point, the prophecy was word of God. Therefore, this might upset some of you. I don't know. I don't know all your backgrounds. Therefore, prophecies today are unnecessary. Did I just say that all prophecies that could be made today are false? I'm not willing to go that far. I think that's true. I'm saying that prophecies today are unnecessary. Why? Because it's either in God's word or it's heresy. It's either in God's word already or it's heresy. So God was sending prophets so that all his people could study and be exhorted, that is comforted, encouraged by truth of who he is, God is. Now notice where prophecies supposedly happen today... 
the people, watch this, rarely are inspired to read God's word. Where I've seen this stuff exercised, it actually doesn't drive people to God's word. It tires them with God's word. Alistair Begg gave a great illustration. He was at a conference and they had people come up and give a word from the Lord, i.e. prophecy. A word from the Lord. And everyone, you can just feel the energy in the room. Every, oh, a word from the Lord for us. God's speaking to us right now. And everyone was just electric. And then the next person went up. All right, we're going to read from God's word. Open the Bible. And you felt the room go to sleep. Tell you what, whatever that is, does not glorify God. Whatever that is, is not what God is pleased to do in his church. God wants to teach his people who he is to comfort them, to encourage them and to urge them to live rightly. And that's why it was no more than three prophets in a service one at a time so that all the church could study and learn and be comforted. Verses 32 to 33. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, one of the funniest moments while studying is, hang on, that confused me. (laughs) You told me something confusing in verse 32, and then you told me that God is not a God of confusion. What's going on there, Paul? So if God's not a God of confusion, is verse 32 confusing? No, we just must not understand what he's saying here. All he means is this. True prophets are self-controlled. They keep themselves under control. They don't lose control. Pagan prophets lost control. They enter euphoria, an ecstatic, hypnotic channeling of demonic spirits, probably in many cases. God's prophets are of sound mind, clear-headed, characterized By the fruit of the spirit, self-control. You would not listen to a true prophet and then afterwards go, that guy was out of control. He was off the hook. Kenneth Copeland or whatever. Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn and all those morons on TBN. Pray that they repent. That is out of control. And for many reasons, they are clearly not from the Lord. Now, before we continue, notice that a prophecy or tongue was not even normal for the Corinthian church. Watch this. If, 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 verse 27, if a tongue is spoken, verse 30, if a revelation is made, it was rare even for them. So we must be on guard now, especially regarding any word from the Lord. Fourthly, women must not lead in worship. Must not lead in worship. Verses 34 to 35. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. But if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Now, you remember back to 1 Corinthians 11. Women, if they had their head covered and they were operating under authority visibly, if it was clear that they were not acting in an authoritative way, 
They could pray or even, in some cases, prophesy. They could, the Lord spoke through women. That was part of Joel's prophecy, that, that the Lord would speak even through prophetesses in the early church. That happened. Paul's already talked about that. He's not contradicting himself here. You remember how women were uh, tempted to act as authorities, though. That's what he's addressing. That's what he's addressing. Paul says that's unacceptable. That is inappropriate behavior in the worship service. So this text likely deals with the judgment of prophecy. Prophet speaks. Let the others discern whether what this prophet has said is true or false. And I believe that Paul is saying when that happens, women should not speak. I believe he's being very specific here. Because if it means women can never talk in any way in the worship service, we're violating that every Sunday, right? Ladies come in talking probably more than the men do in the worship service. That is not being forbidden, of course not. Only men can judge a prophet by Deuteronomy 18. Women are forbidden to pass judgment. Why? Paul's being consistent. That's authoritative. It would be shameful for a man prophet to get up and a woman prophet to condemn him when there are men there that can do that and should do that. 1 Timothy 2. A woman must learn in quietness, in all submission, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. That's what he's talking about. An authoritative role, but to remain quiet in that way. For it was Adam who was first formed, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into trespass. Did you notice that? We are tempted to say what? Oh, Paul's writing this to the Corinthians because it was like a Corinthian thing. Uh, Adam and Eve. Oh, yeah, but Adam and Eve, like they fell into sin, they were really messed up. No, 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 no. Before the fall, Adam was created first, and then Eve. This is God's... Divine design. They fell, and God didn't scrap it. He said, "Mm, well, the woman's the one that was deceived. Man wasn't deceived, which is a, a unique shame on man, that he knew what was going on there and allowed it to happen. What's the point? God is redeeming and restoring all that we've lost in the fall. God says male, female. Satan says, I hate that. God says marriage, monogamous marriage. Satan says, I hate that. God says male headship and complementarity. I hate that, Satan says. We are, we're going to be happy if we trust God's word. Now, men must lead where our first father, Adam, failed. What should have Adam said when he saw that serpent talking to his wife and contradicting God's word. He should have said, heretic, and jumped in between them and scooped his wife away from that dragon. He was quiet. He let his wife lead. And here we are. Okay, God does not punish you here, ladies. That is so important. This text is not punitive on women. He's protecting you. He's one of my favorite things. Kate's mom, Jamie, she, she's, she's part of our staff and we'll regularly have meetings that she's a part of and she'll be really quiet. 
And she says at the end of meetings, like Chuck will say, you're really quiet, Jamie. And she always has this charming grin. And she goes, I'm just so glad that God doesn't expect me to lead. And he's asked you to do it. That's beautiful. That's beautiful femininity. Beautiful femininity. And so God's protecting you, ladies. Now, listen how God wisely balances the gender roles. Keep reading in verse 35. But if the woman, women, desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Okay? So notice, she's, the sense is, okay, sweetheart, you said that that man was a false prophet. Why is he a false prophet? Why is he a heretic? What was wrong about it? That's a very appropriate thing for her to just, on the drive home, <laughs> to, be, to be just pelting him with questions. Why, why, what, what, Let's, what scriptures, you know? Go for it. Go to town now. What accountability does that bring the men? You need to be prepared. Are you ready to answer all your wife's questions, or at least to investigate them faithfully with her in the word. Gentlemen, the, the, all, the order is tall. Ephesians 5 says that your job description as husband is to bathe your wife in the word. Sisters, do not get married just to get married. What a fool you would be. Wait on the Lord to provide a man that's serious about his word. He doesn't have to know the whole thing by heart. I don't. Okay, no one does. But he needs to be serious about God's word. Otherwise, be prepared to sit quietly as your husband says a bunch of stupid stuff with which you strongly disagree. And you've got to just honor the Lord by a lot of silence that would not be a happy marriage. I don't want that for you. And gentlemen, I don't want you to be that kind of a husband. That's why we teach the word of God. That's why we teach in such a way that would be very unpopular with most college and young adult groups. We teach the word of God the same way everywhere in this church. Line by line, precept by precept, here a little, there a little. It's the reason Israel hated Isaiah. It's the reason God then responded with a curse on Israel. Lastly, and most briefly, be humble and obey God's order. Verses 36 to 40. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here. I know I usually then ask for a show of hands after I've said that, but I'm really not going to ask for a show of hands. Are you feeling upset? Maybe, maybe, maybe some in this room are feeling upset. Here's Paul's response. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it arrived to you only? Oh, we have a little saying in America, fill the burn. And we feel the burn. All of us to some degree feel that there. Translation. Stop acting like you wrote the Bible. Stop acting like you're the one that wrote the Bible. When we're tempted to disagree with scripture, that's how we're acting. Stop acting like the Bible was written to you alone. Do you know that the Bible wasn't written to any of us in this room? The letter to the Corinthians was written to the who? Not to you and I, but it was written for us. 
God means what God says, whether we like it or not. And when you feel the sting of disagreement with God, it's wise for us to decide that we are wrong and he is right. Verse 37, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Paul is laying down the law here very strongly. Translation, anyone who wants to fight over this is a fleshy false prophet. Don't you dare say Jesus is Lord and then argue with his word. You're a walking contradiction. Is there any room to disagree over this? Now, here's the thing. I I may have completely mishandled the word of God tonight. I don't believe I did. My conscience is clean. But what Paul says here, really says, he says there's no room for disagreement over this. Why is it, by the way, have you ever noticed this? I am a guilty offender here. Why is it that we feel super spiritual when we make gray areas on doctrines? I I do this too. I don't want to make enemies. I don't want people, I don't want you to be upset with me. Of course not. I like to be liked. Why is it that we feel super spiritual when we go, well, I I, I don't know. I I don't know if God's word really says that. I mean, there's a couple ways to understand it. Verse 38, but if anyone remains ignorant, the word is agnostic about this, he is ignored by God. You ignore God, God ignores you. It is a sin, watch this, it is a sin to be ignorant, to be willfully ignorant. To have sat here tonight, see here's the trouble guys, you've sat under the word of God tonight, you're not ignorant anymore. That's the trouble. You've heard God speak. It's a sin to plead the fifth. And God's, the point here is God says, I am a fake if I ignore his word. I'm a fake. Verse 39 to 40, therefore, my brothers, hear the affection. My brothers, he's just said a hard word. He wants to follow it up with affection. My brothers, I'm not saying you're not saved. I've told you, you're saved. I love you. I want good for you. Listen to what I've said, loved ones. Earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. Earnestly pursue people speaking the word of God in your church. And if someone's authentically got the gift of tongues, which I've strictly regulated, don't forbid it. He's just summarized chapter 14. Prophecy is so very, very important for you. It absolutely dwarfs all the stuff that you've been esteeming there. In other words, you guys should all shut up. Not you, Corinthians. You guys should all, well, you too, okay? But the Corinthians should shut up, sit down, and listen to God speak through his prophets. Speak his word. Stop the talent show. Stop the carnival. You see? You guys get this. Isn't it strange? I mean, the... The Corinthian church would come in here and they'd say, what are they doing sitting all quiet and stuff? So it just goes to show how foreign this is. Praise God. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Why? Because God 
is glorified by organization. God is glorified by structure. God is glorified by self-control. God is glorified by excellence. What's the opposite? He's defamed by disorder. He's defamed by slack. He's defamed by laziness. He's defamed by uncontrolled behavior. We are talking right now about building a worship center. And let me encourage you guys. You put all the money that all of us in this room could contribute to that, it's not going to amount to much. I'm encouraging you to think spiritually about this. If you're not generous now with your tiny little paycheck that you make part-time at the ice cream parlor or whatever, you're not going to be generous when you start making more money. I'll tell you that. I encourage you. Make a commitment. Make a faithful commitment. Make a commitment prayerfully to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to be a part of this family. I'm going to be a part of putting that thing up. And I, there's, there's a healthy pride like I belong. That, that's my place. That's where I worship. And that building, so much thought has gone into the structure of it, the beauty of it, the design, the lines, everything. Why? Because God is glorified by symmetry and beauty and excellence. God cares how that building looks. God cares how a worship service looks. I want you to think about this. Then I'm going to close. I'm going to shut up. Many of you have come to this church because you heard that they preached the word of God there. But then you came and you stayed because of the feel of the church, among many other reasons. There's, there's order here. It's, it's like what Paul said about those that will come, the unbelievers will come in your midst and they'll say, God is in this place. There's something about the fact that people are under control and they're joyful and they're together and there's unity and there's truth and there's beauty. And they say, this is not like my life before. Just chaos, disagreement, darkness, sin, selfishness, pride, self-promotion. I was talking with Sawyer about the business world. Just everything's all about manifesting this and that. I visualize you're going to be a millionaire in this. That's what they're just drowning down us. I heard the same things when I was... You come to church and it's about a great God that gave his life for sinners who had nothing to gain from it. And therefore, his people, they think of giving. Not what they gain when they come together, but what they can give for others' joy. So may God be glorified in and among us. The last question I want to ask you, discuss it at your tables, is what do we do sub-excellent here? Be brave, be bold. Talk about it. And then answer this question. How are you going to help to make that thing excellent? Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. Until he returns... 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you 